Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome to the show, podcast listeners. We got a great show for you today. Our guest is one of my favorite angel investors on the planet. Welcome to the show, Tom Williams. Thanks very much. Happy to be here. Tom, you just told me you used to live in Los Angeles and have never been to Manhattan Beach. That's the saddest thing I've ever heard. It's the most LA, LA thing you said. And it's true, right? Like, where is LA? Where does it begin and where does it end? I talked to my friends in Silver Lake. I used to date a girl over there. And you'll talk to people throughout the city and be like, hey, have you ever been to so-and-so? I'm like, I've never even heard of that. <laughs> it's a little easier now that they have lived. How long ago were you here? Early 2000s. So it's a lot. LA pre-Uber and Lyft was kind of the most miserable city ever. And Taxi Magic, I wasn't an angel investor yet at the time, but Taxi Magic was kind of the precursor here, I feel like, to Uber and Lyft. So we used to take that. But the way you would get around and you'd go visit friends for a barbecue or something was if I was going to Silver Lake, which listeners is like an hour away, but only like 10 miles probably as a crow flies. If you take a taxi home, it'd be $150. So back then, this is why I originally invested in a hotel tonight, because we'd go and just get a hotel room instead of having to pay $300 for taxis. Anyway, Manhattan Beach is the land of milk and honey. I'm glad you're here. Speaking of, we just have to complete the LA story. So I had moved from New York to an apartment right on PCH, right on the highway. And I didn't really, in New York, you just, there's cabs everywhere. So I was the idiot standing on PCH trying to hail cabs for about a couple of weeks until I figured that out. I would love to have seen that. So it's funny, we actually have, LA also has fairly awful public transportation. It's getting better, but directly behind our office is the Metro. But the problem is in LA, you take the Metro, you still, you show up somewhere and then you still have to get somewhere else. I traveled a lot by bus in Santa Monica and they all looked at me like I was an undercover cop. They're like, why are you on this? You shouldn't be on this. It's terrible. Well, it's funny because it's been great because the ride sharing companies have definitely been subsidized by VC here because they're so cheap, but they're starting to tick up in price. You're noticing they're getting a little more expensive. You're originally Canadian, aren't you? Yes. Whereabouts? Vancouver Island. I'm heading to Vancouver tomorrow morning. You are? Vancouver, British Columbia. But yeah, I'm going to be there for the weekend. Love it up there. It's gorgeous in the summer. You know, I've always wanted to go to, I'm a terrible surfer. Listeners know this, but I'm a... Grew up mostly in Colorado, so I'm a skier, but I have a surfboard now that I live in LA. You have to. Do you actually use it though? I do. I do. <laughs> and you got to stay out of my way because I, I will run over any small children. But there's a supposed to be a great little surf town that I've been meeting on my to-do list in Tofino. Vancouver. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty cool? Yes, very. I mean, you're used to it, but it's a shock for people who've not surfed in the Pacific Ocean because it is freaking cold. And I'm kind of a, a baby about cold water. So my surf season here, even though it's LA, is probably like six months because winter, when it gets ice cream headaches, cold feet, I'm a, I'm not a big fan. But I love that part of the world. There's, uh, there's some pretty cool... Some of the islands have been high on my to-do list as well. 
We've had a lot of Canucks on the show lately. We've had a fair amount of Canadians, oddly enough. They're well represented. All right. So we're going to talk about all things angel investing, VC, startup companies, entrepreneurship, all that fun stuff. But let's hear a little bit about your background. I don't know that much. Give me the rundown. Were you birthed out of the womb as an angel investor? I was a terrible, terrible, terrible student in school. And I remember distinctively in third, fourth, and fifth grades in particular, where I was teachers, educators, went out of their way to like shame me in that I was different. And thankfully, because I had great parents, I knew that I was very smart, but I never conformed to, I never lived in the box ever. And so being inside the box was so uncomfortable that I wanted to break free of it as quickly as possible. And so I figured out at around 10 or 11 that the primary kind of reason in which they tell you like stay in school is to get a good job. So I figured if I could hack that, that I could get out of school. And so I became an entrepreneur when I was 12 years old. And what happened, I mean, people, kids these days, having a computer, you know, I'm 40. So having a computer in your home is a definite luxury and one that my parents wouldn't have been able to afford. But my dad worked at the university where we grew up and and so therefore he got a computer through university. And my parents hated, they weren't Luddites, but they were also very aware of how gorping at the television screen or on video games was kind of destructive to the mind. Apple IIe, Commodore 64. It was a Mac LC with two megs of RAM and a 40 megabyte hard drive and a 12 inch monochrome. I still have it. And so they had this thing on, on the Mac called HyperCare, sorry, HyperCard. HyperCare is a portfolio company, HyperCard. And I taught myself how to program on that. And the entrepreneurial mind was, well, a lot of other kids don't have games. And so I was trying to sell these games to my friends. But what ended up happening was my mom calls it an elaborate form of running away. And I, I don't talk about it publicly because I talked about it publicly for so long. But I ended up getting a job in California when I was a teenager. And so I moved from Canada alone to the Bay Area in 1995. And now as a parent, I'm like 15-year-old, yeah, <laughs> terrible, right. terrible idea, terrible. So I ended up getting a job. And then my parents were going through the divorce court in Canada. The debate between my parents' lawyers was, well, the father is petitioning not to pay child support for the youngest son because the youngest son makes more than both the parents combined. And that became kind of like a headline story. And if you imagine like a little kid, right? I mean, you're an idiot when you're a kid, right? Like now I know, I thought I was so smart. And when all this press started calling from like all over the world, I was like, wow, I have power that I can yield here. And so I ended up leveraging this kind of story for my own gains and kind of getting into better and better and better jobs. I was working down here for a very well-known billionaire investor when I was 20 years old. But working for him at the time, I came to see that he was not very happy and he was certainly not very satisfied. That was my observation of him at the time. And so in my little 22-year-old brain, I was like, having a lot of wealth will trap me and imprison me in a way that I don't. So back to that wanting to be out of the box, I spent most of my 20s building a philanthropic organization that was kind of the precursor to Kickstarter and, and Indiegogo and really trying to make meaning in my life. But then in my later 20s, so 2008 came along, nobody needed a tax receipt. 
I also made every stupid decision that every first time young entrepreneur makes, which was like, we even subsidized the credit card costs. Our privacy policy is we'll never email you. And there was no social media back then. So it was just dumb. Still incredibly proud of what we accomplished there. People's lives literally have been changed because of it. But in my late 20s, I started, what I recognized was I wasn't very good at receiving feedback. I had all these great people around me and I wasn't really able to listen. And that was what caused me to fail more than anything else. And so I became obsessed with how do you give feedback? And so long before Tiny Pulse or Glint or all these like larger companies now in that space, I came up with this continuous anonymous survey called Happily. I remember distinctively because my first child was born on December 3rd. And December 27th, I just created a landing page. I hadn't tried to market this. And some blog called PSFK in the UK said, this is the future of work. My phone is typically turned off through those few weeks because I'm so on that I really need to have one break that I just try and be quiet about. And my wife, who's just an incredible partner, been with her for 17 years, she said, look, I was getting sign-up requests on this landing page from... I won't mention the names, but like CEOs of massive companies. And she said, Tom, like this is, you've got to hop on this. Like these guys like are not going to, they're on their break. If you don't get on these calls right away, like you're going to miss the opportunity. And so I did. And and that long kind of parlayed into deciding, okay, I need, and I was living in Canada at the time. And I was like, if I'm going to do this, I have to do that in the Valley. And so I raised $7 million before we even really launched the business. And it was called Better Company. And Better Company was a mobile app that was the most positive, anonymous community on the internet. So anonymity, if you think about at 4chan and so on and so on, anonymity has, even if you start off with the intent of neutrality, as soon as a troll comes in, it automatically starts to drag everybody down. And so we built this community that was about sharing about your work anonymously. And so all you had to do is say, I'm an investor, and you'd be matched with other investors. And it was incredibly positive. We were growing, but we recognized that in consumer mobile, you needed about a million MAU to become kind of to get to a Series B. And even if we'd put all of our money in customer acquisition, anonymity is incredibly difficult to scale because the only anonymous content that is kind of like viral is negative or sensational. And so positivity is not as viral as negativity. Anyway, I, I made a decision, which I still regret to this day, to pivot from this consumer mobile app into the enterprise. It was the right thing to try and pursue value for our investors. One of the first downsides of venture capital is you're really not in control of your own destiny. And I think entrepreneurs start their businesses with the idea that I want to be free. They want to be out of the box. So I would say that for me, I started angel investing with a very specific desire to learn from CEOs that I admired. So that was my kind of investing strategy was find CEOs that are better than me. And I was very good at doing that. And it was in the summer of 2016 where one of my first angel investments, a company that's one of my best investments, I had built such a trusted relationship with him by that point, two years in, that he was very, very, very afraid 
there was a moment that was very, very, very terrifying for him. And so- In the entrepreneur world, we call that every morning. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and I think- day, 10 years in, we're like, that's still Monday. Some worse than others. There's that saying that basically a business is born, stillborn, and it's your job to resuscitate it every single day until it kind of gets its own vitals, or which takes years. I don't think people who have not been in that seat don't understand that. So in any event, what was distinctive about that day was that- we just had our second child and within that year, no, I guess he's a year and a half at this point. And we're just kind of, it was like our first or second date that we've had since he was born. And I was describing being very frustrated trying to manage a team member that worked for me in one moment. And my entire energy of that, of just like being so frustrated was palpable to her. And then here's money that we're about to lose in my mind because this company is probably dead. And again, companies look like they're about to die multiple times. If you're up close and personal, it looks like it's going to die many times through the journey. And so, and I was so excited though about the fact that he confided in me this moment and I was able to help him through this perceived crisis. And she said, capture this moment, capture this moment. And at the end of that year, we go to, to an island in Hawaii and we have a very intentional meeting. It happens on the golf course. She doesn't golf, but we, and I'm not a great golfer, but it's four hours of purposeful walking is how we look at it. What we do is we try and stop the things we don't want to continue in the year. And what do we want to create or drag forward into the new year? And my first thought was, I want to be investing full time, but I also am never going to do it as a two and 20. And what was the reason behind that? What was the... I didn't know at the time, but I think that Management fees in this asset class are the crack cocaine because what ends up happening is as a fund manager, you become incentivized. As far as I know, you may, may know others, but it's the only contract in which for at least five years, you're paid regardless of your performance and that the LP has really no recourse other than to maybe find secondary for their position. And so what ends up happening, and I see it play out all the time, is that the emerging manager goes and gets a bunch of LPs, convinces them that they're the best. The LPs don't really understand how to evaluate these managers. And that's the biggest problem, is most allocators know nothing about this asset class. And so therefore, they get them, and then they get a couple of markups, especially if you can buy kind of quote unquote name brand VCs, and then they come back to those LPs and like, look, this is working. Look at this. You're up 3x in one and a half years. And so they try and raise as many funds. I have lots of dear, dear friends who are great managers. But for every person that is focused on making carry, when you're making two, three, four million dollars a year. And the other part of it is, I think about venture capital as as kind of having been the most effective set of bullshit ever repeated. Because they also say, power law, baby, 90% of these investments are going to zero. And you should look at me as a good manager with 90% of my picks being failures. And that's okay. And anybody that signs up for that story is just not somebody that sees the world the way that I do. So let's hear about how you see the world. Okay, so you started making kind of your first angel investments. This would have been mid, late 
2000s? I started making my first angel investments only in 2013. 13. I don't even know what you call this decade. So the early 20 teens. And what was the transition from, and was there, did you start to do it on your own or did you immediately start to actually syndicate them? How did the whole progression from entrepreneur to investor to yeah. professional? So my first angel investments through until I started my fund last year were with a partner that, and it was basically a kind of a great, I think we disagreed on maybe two investments for the, the whole time that we invested together and we invested in some great companies. But it was only in 2018 that I started the fund. And then again, I remember even loathe to call it a fund because effectively it's an annual commitment that is a one-time fee for just setup costs. And last year it was kind of totally, it was totally blind pool. But in go forward years, because most of my investing now is follow on, where I know these companies intimately well, what I'm able to say to LPs is, hey, here's the underlying basket that I'm going to try to allocate to you can have time to actually understand what these companies are and you can interrogate me as to whether you think that they're good investments or not. And then I'll have 20 to 30% of the fund, depending on the size each year, reserved for just complete blind pool, reacting to new opportunities and so on. But And explain the blind pool for the listeners if they're not familiar with that. Yeah, blind pool is your classic VC fund where you're basically saying to the manager, I'm giving you complete discretion within whatever the bounds of the LPA are, the limited partner agreement are. You can do whatever you want with it. Let me know seven to 10 years from now how well you did. Sometimes it may be 15 years. Right. And so <laughs> the idea too about the annual fund is I have to convince, I intentionally designed it to be the future of what allocators should do with any emerging manager, which is basically to say, trust, but verify. So yes, I'm going to allocate to you. And I'm going to ask you to explain yourself on an annual basis. And if for whatever reason I choose not to allocate, I can cut at any point. There's no obligation to invest in subsequent funds. But then I've got kind of first right of refusal. And then in addition, I'll open up SBVs, special purpose vehicles, which will allow investors who want to double down on individual opportunities as those become available. And so, I mean, effectively, a few of my family offices, it's allowed their allocators to do is to say, okay, the venture side of the house is going to be covered by Tom. And which is good because most allocators do not, if I gave professional allocators a set of companies and asked them to make bets on those companies, and we looked at how those allocators would, what they would choose and what I would choose, they would be markedly different. But the problem with these emerging managers is that typically, in the typical structure, you're committed. You're committed to that fund and you're paying fees on that and you just don't know. So that was my intention. And then the other part of it is there's now so much money flowing into this asset class and it's only going to keep flowing and flowing and flowing and flowing that you get all of these terrible managers. And so they need to deploy capital. And so there's more and more bad companies being funded all the time. And I was just talking to one of my mentors about this last night. And he was like, you've kind of been saying this and we've kind of been saying this each year. And I was convinced, by the way, that America was going to implode next year from just on a kind of structural debt side of things. But now I'm of the complete opposite view. I think we're going to be in funny money, free money for decades to come. And so what that means is no yield or even worse, 
or low yield, no yield, people are going to be kind of jumping into this. And what I also think is happening is, is that the banks are trying to figure out their play in. I think what you're going to start to see is a lot more soft bank type funds. A lot of people don't understand that the soft bank vision fund is paying a coupon. So Saudi's money is debt, not equity. And so that's why I think SoftBank's vision fund and SoftBank itself could very well implode. And that will cast a chill on the venture market for quite some time because the Wall Street Journal will be like printing article after article about, oh my God, the guy that was supposed to be brilliant turned out not to be. And what does that mean for venture capital and da, 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 da. But I think what the banks are going to start to do is trying to do some kind of like, there are going to be more blended public-private funds who will try to offer some form of guaranteed rate of return or promised rate of return with some degree of greater liquidity in the position. I think you're going to see a lot of financial engineering in this asset class with more and more banker types trying to get their share of this asset class. Interesting. So talk to me a little bit about, all right, so the mid-teens, it's kind of an innovative structure you don't hear about as much. And as the world of SPVs has really developed, my listeners have heard this, but my kind of personal investing in the private world really started about the same time. And the listeners who've been listening since the beginning have followed along this path of my experience, which has been from the get-go, I'm a public markets guy, but said, I'm going to do this as an education. The goal is to hopefully not lose all my money. If it breaks even with the S&P, that's great. If it makes money, gravy. But the goal would be to really learn. And so you've been one of my favorites, but I uh, would love to hear kind of your early days. How did this all get started? I mean, how did in the early 20-teens, did you even get the deal flow or find these deals? Like, How does someone kind of get even get off the starting line here. Well, I won't give away all my secrets, but I will- Only the good ones. Yeah. I think that what your approach that you just articulated is very, very important. I actually think that if you want to go into this properly and really learn, you should apply whatever that pool of capital is that's kind of your first two or three years as complete write-off money, like complete write-off money, because it will allow you to be more detached in your self-analysis of- what your decisions were and look back at that more as a true education than in the emotional, nobody likes to lose money. Everybody hates to lose money. So for me, I think I started pretty haphazardly like I think most people do. You don't really have, well, I'm sorry, that's actually not true because as a founder, you kind of innately already have some form of network through conferences and so on and so on. Having been Canadian, I recognize that there were a lot of Canadians that were constantly coming to the Valley to fundraise. And that because I knew how to build a network, very I know how to build a network. I'm very, very good. If you want to live out of the box, you have to be able to survive for yourself. And so that survival instinct teaches you how to rely on others to help you hunt and help you succeed. So I like to say that there's only two ways to live life as a king or as a pawn. And most people choose pawns because every move that you make as a king could get you killed. But what I mean by that is, is that most people would rather kind of stay in the box and stay in a lane and be okay with okay than try to take these 
big risks that could get you falling flat on your face. Well, the genetics probably Survival evolved yeah. To, yeah. to not run towards the tiger. Right, 100%. And so therefore, kind of have to be a little crazy, or certainly just by crazy, just simply not, not normal to succeed. So back to my kind of early investing, I think that the fact that I had built this network and that I am naturally, you know, there's that book, Givers, Takers, and Matchers. I've never read it because the title tells you everything you need to know, but I'm a giver. I love to be helpful to people. And that desire to be helpful allowed me to be helpful to other VCs and to other entrepreneurs. So what I started doing was kind of becoming a bit of a, you know, on planes, you see that it's been there for like decades where it's like, hello, I'm Nancy. I'm a professional matchmaker. You know, I'll find you your, you know, many happy couples. Somewhere in Sky Mall. Exactly. So I was always playing the role of matchmaker. Like I was at YC this week and one of my favorite new managers who doesn't really know is not well networked. I was just like, hey, this is who you got to meet. This is who you got to meet. I love doing that for people that I believe in. And so if I was investing in a company, clearly I believed in it and that person. And it was the power of those pom-poms that made founders feel like I was, first of all, I was the smallest check. I was the smallest check. And therefore we, I'm sorry, we were the smallest check. And what was interesting was that I would say to people, we're going to be the smallest check and we're going to be the highest impact. And so I also looked at it like, this is the other thing that I think if you want to live in this business, you have to do is you have to have a heart to serve. So instead of it being, I'm giving you my money, you better report to me about how well you're doing and have always taken the exact opposite. I would say, hey, how are you doing? And as you know, there's no easy day in the journey. And so when you have this person who's a trusted friend, the journey is so much better. I remember one of my youngest entrepreneurs I ever backed, he asked me one day, why do you do what you do? And because I wasn't, I've never been kind of, or at least at that point in my life, I wasn't very kind of strategic. I've always kind of just been a happy traveler on whatever the journey is. He said, why do you do what you do? And I said, if I had me when I needed me most, I'd be a billionaire today. And I really believe that. Yeah. I mean, I think the distinction you make between having someone who's almost like a value-added confidant versus someone who's an investor. Correct. Yes. And just will help when it's easier, help when you're already killing it. I think it's a totally, it's a different relationship. Yeah. I like to say everybody could be me, but they won't be because the other thing that it requires is tremendous. I would say just to be a successful investor in this asset class, you require so much courage. All of my best investments looked like dog shit when I made them. And so I used to say, I'm either batshit crazy or I'm the best and we won't know for 15 years. And most investors don't even get $1 billion company in their entire career. And I'm quite confident that I'm on the path to getting at least a few. And the main reason was courage and that heart to serve. And by the way, all of my best companies, the companies that now are becoming known to everybody, went through tremendous turbulence at some point. And so what I also try and do is I really actively want to be that first call in the darkest of days, because when you are that call and you can support that person that you chose to believe in, there's a reason why you, if you're a good picker, you chose the right person. And therefore, when they get through that, you won't really, you can't solve the problem. It's their job always, right? Like I always like to say, if I'm the hero, 
if I've made a meaningful impact in the investment, I've made the wrong investment. I've chosen the wrong person. Unless you're doing, I've done a lot of intentionally first-time founders and so on and so on. But generally speaking, my best companies, I've done the least for. But now, if I want to get into any deal, one of my CEOs will be a public company CEO. And he's just, today, I just saw one of the major financial regs listed that company as the best, fastest growing company in San Francisco. And he's going to be a public company CEO in a couple of years. And because of that loyalty, I can't do it on every investment, but if ever I needed to get into an investment, I can deploy those CEOs to say, listen, you know what? You don't know Tom, but let me tell you, here's who else is on my cap table. And let me tell you that he ranks at or above. I tell all my CEOs, I want to be top three, worst case, top five, as perceived by each CEO. And by the way, to the allocators that are listening, what I would say is like, do the reference calls. Literally talk to every CEO that that manager has backed for two or more years. I've been a reference call for LPs and they're taking a snapshot of a couple of companies. You have to do the work. And if you wanted to find who the best managers are, that's all you have to do. You have to somehow, of course, have the trust that the CEO will say the right thing. But typically, if they're not calling back, you also know that there's a good reason. And so that's it. Super simple. And the reference is funny because in our experience, it's such a simple thing to do that so many allocators, investors, people just in life don't do. We've had numerous service providers or people pitch us work that we're like getting ready to sign with, say, okay, just send me a list of references. And there's been numerous that just don't even send don't any reply. back. Yeah. They're just like, we know they're all going to be terrible. Yeah. We're just done. Yeah. We're just going to yeah. go ahead and yeah, just take right. ourselves out of the running, yeah. which is astonishing yeah. to me. And then even some that would supply them, then you make the effort to call and say, wow, that was illuminating. And you don't get that through going through the normal process of just chatting with someone because they're obviously good at marketing anyway. Okay. So let's start to talk a little bit about, all right, because you've been doing this for a while, almost 100 investments yeah. at this point. Yeah. That's awesome. So Talk to us a little bit about, so have they all been deployed through AngelList or just some or? Now everything has one. And talk to us a little bit about the kind of evolution of how that's worked and walk the listeners who aren't on AngelList. AngelList is the absolute best and absolute worst platform of all time. So what you get as an LP, as an investor, is it's like e-commerce for startups. Typically what you have to do to get that deal flow is you have to do a lot of coffees, a lot of which are you kind of sit down and you know you've wasted your time before the meeting even starts. And so you get access to, for example, all of the investments that I make in a year. And you can just click to back backers. And suddenly it's 11 p.m. on a Friday night, you're sitting in your underwear looking at investments that you would have had no ability to get into save for that manager, that syndicate lead, being able to invite you into the deal. So you pay a carry both to the platform and to the lead, but you're getting to choose deal by deal, which is excellent, right? Because you're under no obligation and you can sit on AngelList. You can't sit on my syndicate and not make investments, but many, you could just sit there forever and just learn. I think that, and you obviously know that the backer's perspective way better than I do, but how many leads do you follow? I signed up for all of them. Holy crap. So how do you even sort? It's not as much as you would think. I, in general, again, might go back to being an education. 
and I've invested in not just on AngelList, but about 100 private companies started in 2014. So we started the exact same year. Small amounts. Yeah. And again, all my public stuff, listen to this ad nauseum, is quant based. So it's running on auto. And this to me is a way to say involved, to learn, but also it's such an optimistic experience. So if you follow global macro and a lot of stuff you're talking about earlier and watch TV or read Twitter or whatever, all you want to do all day is just buy puts on the stock market and that's it. It's negative news flow. But then you follow kick-ass, awesome entrepreneurs solving the best yeah. problems in the world. And all you want to do is put all your money into all these companies. But I tell people, there's an old tweet from years ago. I said, if you're ever bummed out, go read the Entrepreneur Inc. magazine when they profile like the top 50 growing companies or whatever. And you see these people doing the coolest things. I mean, you cannot help but be just optimistic inspired. on what's going on yeah, in the world. Yeah, inspired. Yeah. Thank you. And so anyway, so I follow all of them and it's not as much of a flood as deal flow as you imagine. And again, you start to find the ones you like. So there's only about two or three. I put you in this company where when I look at the deals you have, it's the default is yes. And then I've talked myself out of it. Yep. Whereas the others, it's a 99% no, but have to talk myself into it. Fair. I think that's a good approach. I think though, so the biggest problem is that I see is that I'll get new backers and you actually, in addition to, you have to apply to back a syndicate, but I even have a now rigorous process of getting to know the people more than an average lead would, than any lead actually does. And so partly because I have to protect, what I'm very, very nervous about is funds trying to gain information through the stuff that I share. And competing companies too. Yes, exactly right. And by the way, Think about the founder's perspective of AngelList, right? Which is, I have 700 plus backers. And so the idea of sharing, founders are paranoid. So the idea of sharing anything on anywhere with 100 plus people is just absurd. So, And particularly because a lot of the companies you focus on in AngelList in general, listeners, is seed stage startups. So yeah. a lot of these are, they don't have to be stealth, but many of them are not. I mean, some of them are, but many of them don't have 10, 100 million in revenue, established companies. A lot of these are literally startups where this information is fairly critical. Yes, yes, absolutely. And so anyway, I'm super paranoid because my founders are, and so therefore I have to do what they want. The backer gets to basically just, like I said, e-commerce. The problem though, is that a lot of my backers consider themselves angel investors when what they should consider themselves is as deal-by-deal -deal LPs in an emerging manager that they get to opt in or out of at any time. The difference being that as you trust your manager, therefore you should trust their decisions more than your own. Going back to that comment, which I can go back and narrate the best companies in my portfolio, none of those companies were, all of those companies were hard to finance. All of those companies were difficult because the non-courageous herd-like investors were over in these hypey categories losing their shirts. And I was going and supporting these entrepreneurs in very, very lonely journeys. And oh, by the way, getting incredible prices all along the way. Which is really important. A lot of people, both in public markets, it's funny because people in public markets, I feel like understand this. Investors seem to understand this more but you see so much less discipline in private markets, probably because of the, what you mentioned earlier about the, hey, power law is gonna solve everything, which it might, but. And I really wanna talk about power law because it's so important, but just on that particular price sensitivity, what I'll say to when I'm negotiating price, which now increasingly I'm leading deals, 
And so I said to a founder yesterday, I said, there are people who will pay a higher price. They are not me. And so therefore do your reference work. And I believe that if the market is here, I deserve a discount to the market, which is like most VCs, because they're in FOMO, they're like, well, I can't miss out on that opportunity. I've never been triggered. That's not true. I've probably been triggered by FOMO two or three times, one of which is one of my only write-offs. And the other two are doing okay, but I don't have what I love to have, which is those relationships with those great entrepreneurs. Bottom line is, because I had to swallow a pill going like, I know I don't really want to support this person in the same way that I want to support all these other founders. So anyway, that's that. But, But on price, like I tell my founders, I have to do two very different things. I have to be the most loved and trusted investor to every CEO I serve. That's that side of the house. And on the other side of the house, the only thing that matters, that should matter to my LPs is cash on cash returns, cash on cash. And so those things are often at odds, especially when you're negotiating price, because this founder is basically saying, well, you don't value me the way that everybody else does. And this is at the beginning of our relationship. It's way easier. Like I'm doing a follow-on of one of my two, I'm actually doing follow-ons of my two best companies right now. And in the one I'm leading and the other, I actually put down a term sheet, but because it was an SPV, they're like, we can't accept, you know, the board wouldn't accept for a very, very big SPV. It was just too much risk for them to take. CEO tried. But in the other case, I said, give me bottom dollar. I deserve it. I don't want you unhappy with this price. I don't want that to impair our relationship, but I want bottom dollar. And if you build that relation, and you know, by the way, great CEOs are going to go out and try and mark price. They're going to try to be as non-dilutive as possible. That's their incentive. You have as an investor and the founder, that's the disaligned incentive. And that's why it's harder for my strategy because I'm actually trying to allocate more and more and more and more capital as the companies. I try and take basically a kind of a inverted, well, I guess it's, no, it's an inverted funnel basically, right? I'm trying to make more and more early stage bets and play power law there, which is not power law. I just know that the odds of mortality at early stage are higher. The companies that I've known for years and years and years just deploy all the capital that I can into those companies. So More and more as I become a pricing agent, these conversations become more difficult. However, once you've earned the trust with that founder, and also, by the way, in almost every fundraise, it takes the average is months to conclude any venture fundraise. Some happen in days or weeks, but most take months. So the other part of it is, is that once my LPs you know, some of my LP base, for example, one of the best companies in my portfolio, one of the top two, there have been LPs who have passed on every single round. They could have invested at a, the first round they could have invested in was at a 12 pre. And we're just closing this valuation at a billion post. And now I've got- Congratulations. Thank you. And I've got now people who are like now clamoring in, which is great because they were able to see this company and they were able to get, and that's the other thing that the SPV model allows presuming that you kind of are organized yourself, you can kind of look back and be like, well, what did Tom say about this company two years ago? It's a diary. Yeah, exactly. Not to digress, but I think it's interesting and instructive. The price paid, there's a ton of academic research on late stage privates, so like leveraged buyouts world. And we've had a few guests on the show that have talked about it, that despite what KKR and everyone else would have you believe, 
that they're super value add and they magically transform companies, by far the biggest determinant of returns is simply the valuation. Yeah. The same thing in public markets is you pay 50 PEs on companies over and over versus PEs of five and 10. Again, we're at a seed stage where there's no E, so it's a little different. But in general, being price sensitive, particularly in a world awash in money, where we kind of are now, is still important to not lose that sort of guidepost. Well, so let's talk about one of the biggest fallacies in venture, which is actually that you're playing a zero-sum game. And by that, I mean that it's a winner-take-all, and the whole market is one company. That's kind of, again, another kind of key fallacy of venture. If you look at technology-driven disruption, it's actually causing a democratization of wealth. There's actually more and more companies that are kind of taking their share of the market. Technology fundamentally is a democratizing force. And it's funny, Meb, because I'm actually like really of two minds. I'm like the biggest tech bull on one side, and then there, but I'm also very vividly aware of all of the, the downsides. And I think we're at a point in human history I think if this could be recorded for, I was just in Egypt and seeing civilizations from 26 BC. If this were somehow able to be, I'm sure that at that point, this conversation will sound like hieroglyphics, right? We'll be talking in some other advanced language. But what I'm getting at is, is that at society right now, we're at a point in which we as humans have begun to lose control of our tools. Our tools are taking over us. And that's a very, very scary place. That's a whole kind of separate thing. My wife would say, Meb, you need to delete Twitter off your phone. Right. <laughs> totally. And I actually, yeah, I mean, yeah, we could go on on that. But suffice to say, on the zero sum, and you look at WeWork, Uber, all these companies, what they do is they overraise to deflate competition. Because VCs are so lemming-like, capital is actually the best moat in venture because basically it's like, stay out. We can crush you with capital. The problem with that approach is that if you don't have great CEOs running these companies and you don't have great boards keeping them accountable and kind of keeping them grounded, then they lose all notion of reality. And I would say that there's a CEO about to go public right now that has no connection with reality. But he's got $700 million in his pocket. Exactly. If, if, if we're talking about the same yeah, person. Exactly. And so <laughs> so that's that's actually the bad of tech, right? The bad of tech is basically that people are not courageous. Those investors are so eager. And I've seen brand name firms put complete fill-in-the-blanks term sheets down. Complete fill-in-the-blanks term sheets. So when you're approaching venture like that, then what's also happening in terms of how you enter a deal, it's also how you manage a deal. You're not actually willing to challenge these CEOs. And especially with these supermajority type companies, here's a weird thing that happens in venture. Because there's so many bad managers, most entrepreneurs' perception of VCs is terrible. If you were to go and like sit in a room with top founders and you talk about VCs, it's like, it's an insult almost. And so because there's so many bad managers, great CEOs who are in a situation where capital is the commodity and they're the prized asset, they then get to engineer never having to deal with VCs again. And so that's why you have these situations where CEOs can kind of command 
these structures and they go, well, I know this company better than any investor will. And that's in most cases true. If I feel like I have more of a command on their market than they do, then that's definitely not a CEO that I want to back. So those are the reasons why you end up with these structures. And I would like to see, I think what's going to end up happening is we're going to end up with the free market, if it runs away from itself, will get regulated always. And I think that where we're at, at a stage of capitalism and particularly tech capitalism, is that there are so few companies wielding so much wealth and power that everybody's uncomfortable by that. And so what you're starting to see is tech becoming the new boogeyman. And I'm predicting, and I mean, it's, you know, I've been predicting this for a long time, but we're now starting to see, and we're just starting to see the beginning of it is the regulatory pushback schema that's coming. For example, David Marcus truly thought that Facebook was going to create their own digital currency. The absurdity and the lack of any awareness that that company has about where and how they're perceived by freaking everybody is like observable to everybody else. You know, it's funny. I was reading a book last night called A History of the United States, maybe A History of the United States Stock Market, I can't remember, in five crashes. Uh So it details 1907, 1929, 1987, 2000, 2008. Well, I haven't written the whole thing yet, so I can't tell you if it's good or not, but I'm reading the first chapter. In the first chapter is about 1907, which is about Roosevelt trust busting Standard Oil and a bunch of the big monopolies in the earliest 20th century. And it's so, I mean, it's like, almost reading a script for something 100 years later, but obviously with different <laughs> different actors and different players, but fascinating nonetheless. Can I give you my predictions for next Let's year? hear it. So the markets will start to price in Warren as a possible, if not likely, next Democratic candidate. And so you'll have tremendous market uncertainty starting around late February, right after Super Tuesday, which is actually mid-February. There will be a tremendous amount of market uncertainty between February and November, effectively. So the swings that we're starting to see now, I think there will be a deflationary sell-off in that category. And then two, I think that she'll win. That's what I believe. And her message will eventually get distilled down to bringing fairness back to America. And by the way, I'm Canadian, so I have no dog in this phrase, right? And then she'll get elected because it's likely to be a two, an all-female ticket, is what I believe. If it's not Cory Booker, it'll be two candidates, two females with one at the top. And then he won't go. So the thing that a lot of Americans don't even kind of remember is the election is in early November, but the inauguration is not till my birthday, January 20th. And so there's this period- You're 40 this year, right? I was 40 earlier. Happy birthday. Thank you. But so that moment where looking at him as good for the markets, good for America, re-China, and a source of comedy- Because every good American has effectively lost so much trust in government. I'll go further to predict that we're going to start to see entire countries in our lifetime will become privatized. And by the way, I don't own a single share of Bitcoin. I was going to say, it sounds like a poster for who is trying to build a offshore floating island. Right. Is that Peter Thiel? Thiel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. It's you can probably pick up Warren on the betting market. She's probably plus 500 right now, I think. There's about six of those Democratic candidates that are all sort of jostling for... Anyway, TBD. We'll see. 
back to investing. And so what do you look for in these companies? You've done almost 100. What has been some of the themes? By the way, listeners, if you sign up for Tom's syndicate, if he lets you in, you get to read a lot of... One of the nice things you do is is write. Yes. As a fellow writer, I love seeing the thesis, whether I agree with it or not, but love seeing the thought process behind an investment. What is it you're looking for? What waters are you wading in? Listeners, as you answer this, talk to a little bit about the market cap range and people say seed, but they don't really know what that means. So yeah. So the reason that I talk about 2020 as an example, I think it's my job to be able to see around corners. And so I'm approaching venture with a much more deliberate view of the macro than most venture investors. Most venture investors ignore macro and I don't. So I've been investing on a theme of America is dying for the last five years. So that's why I looked at so much. And, and by dying, I simply mean losing its, its supremacy in the world. And so I've been looking at how do you fix that? So I've been very, very active, as you know, in healthcare. I wrote something, it's on Medium, called Snakes and Ladders, which is this thesis that the Americans that we need to ladder up are the poor in this trapped class, of which is the majority of, of this country. The majority of this country is poor. So I actually think that ethically run technology companies that are trying to ladder up the poor and what this I call this trapped class have been very, very interesting thematically for me. And for example, I don't know if you've joined me on Possible Finance. I did. Yeah. It's a great company. And I have to get all of mine pre-cleared every single deal we do because we deal a lot with the SEC. And so, but but particularly the ones that may be in fintech, asset management, broad speaking finance. But yeah. So, and it's a more ethical lender for people that are seeking effectively payday loans. And so those companies have done very, very well. And I'm thematically very interested in laddering America up and fixing incredibly significant costs in this country, right? I mean, I think that's what technology, technology's greatest, back to that democratizing power, is to eliminate inefficiency, which creates cost and waste. And so another area thematically too, is just like, where do faxes still happen? In healthcare, for example, the way in which people communicate in hospitals are through pagers pagers and like the amount of, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I look at- There's an entire subset listening to this that probably doesn't know what a pager is. Yeah, which is crazy. <laughs> Our younger listeners. Uh, I've never owned a pager. I know. I don't think I've ever owned one. So then the future of how money gets made, like the future of commerce is a huge theme for me. And that was like Jumbotel and Grove and companies like that and plastic. And then kind of another- big bucket would be attention. Did you do wave? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Why don't you walk us through, for example, maybe to the extent you can, a little bit about wave or pick anyone wave you want. Wave is one of my best stories. Okay. So I did Brian, I invested in Brian on a phone call. And I've invested in, I've done that on, on a couple of ones where I just immediate high conviction. And our initial connecting point was LeBron James and Ohio. He's from Ohio. And here he's talking to a Silicon Valley investor. And I said to him, like, beginning the call, I hate the Warriors. And so he just immediately loves me, right? We're talking about this. And, and so I recognized, because I've been very, very, back to attention, I've been very, very focused on influencers and how 
the way in which people are discovering everything fundamentally has changed. Brand marketing is far less effective. We are trained now to look at brand marketing as noise to be ignored. Classically, television, interstitials, et cetera, et cetera. So you have to embed into the channel. That's the future of kind of commerce at the core. And so I knew I am the least sports guy, sports guy in the world. I know LeBron James and I don't even remember, I think it was a Kwame was the, and I'm Canadian. I don't know anybody. So I made this investment. And what I typically do is I look to share my investments with the people that I respect as kind of those two and 20 managers, because they do the board work, they do all the hard work, and I get to do the fun work, they get to be the ass kickers and, and all that, which is important. And I have a kind of a small group of people that I send things to. So I sent it to them. And we're having the closing dinner a couple of months later, one of the lead investors, the guy had written the largest check, he wasn't actually the lead, but he came in after anyway, he's like, we're chit chatting about sports. And he goes, so Tom, how about what's his name? And I look at him, I'm like, I don't know who you're talking about. And he became ghost white. And he said, wait a second, I followed you into the sports media company and you know nothing about sports and everybody else who knows me better is laughing. I'm like, I'm not a sports guy, but I know people. So for me in the early stage, what you're actually betting on and what you as a backer don't get any real feel for are the people that you're betting on. And I can't and won't, I will or rather I can, but I won't share, because this is my secret sauce, how I pick people, but it is very deliberate. And I have high, high instincts too, but it's there are some deliberate processes that you can employ to kind of pick the right founders. And what you're betting on though, is, is that that founder eventually will make a transition to become a great CEO, which frankly, most founders don't make great CEOs. And so you either have to build around them an infrastructure of great people or the company's going to fail or they're going to get replaced. So you knew LeBron, hated the Warriors, picked the head of this company as the horse to bet on. Yeah. Tell the listeners what the company actually does and how have they grown over the last couple of years. Yeah. So when we, did you do the seed with me? It had a different name. Originally. Yeah. Bullpen. So you did the first. Wow. Great. It was one of those ideas to me that... There's lots that just immediately strike you and you just think that's a really good concept. Yeah. And I mean, sports media is kind of for men and particularly young men is one of the greatest areas of content consumption. I mean, growing up and I'm a big sports guy, but I used to watch, I remember watching ESPN and be nothing else on TV. You would watch SportsCenter yeah. and would just watch it again. The yeah. same exact show. You've already seen it. You know exactly what the highlights are. Yeah. But it's that or, I don't know, Family Ties or something, like something terrible you're going to watch. So people love to consume sports in general and highlights in general. Sports are tribal. And that's the piece that I understand is like, so as a Canadian, my dad was as Welsh. And so we would get lucky to go over to Europe. I think I did two trips. I did two trips with them as a kid. And in both, we went to soccer games, football games. And so like I understood sports tribalism incredibly well. And also thematically, like I knew that around attention, people like there's only a couple of things that get people like riled up. And that's why like hate and so on has become so populous because it works to get people agitated. And so this was like a positive influence in that world. And so I made the investment, but it was also that he was a failed mobile consumer founder. And he had actually found that just before his first company failed, 
he started to realize that there was these teenagers who were building these kind of sports tribute channels. And that if you knew how to get to them, that they'd promote your app for nothing and they would drive more downloads than any other kind of mechanism and for free or for low cost. So that was a huge, huge insight for him. And so he started just going to these mostly teenagers and saying, can I buy your channel? And these kids would be like, for how much? How about $10,000? $10,000. So we continued to do this. I mean, these, these creators exist all over the world and they're super passionate and they understand the what is memed. They understand what is going to get other people's attention. And so they're just creating it. And so there's kind of like, whack-a-mole of us just going and buying these channels. Back to like what Facebook did. I mean, we're growing on all these platforms, but there's a point in which you just kind of, so the wave brand now, I think to creators, you don't want to work with another digital media company or a media company because they don't understand you. They think that they do and they kind of try to talk cool and then you realize they're suits. And so it was a bet on them understanding and being native in this language and this language and these creators being so powerful that it's truly the future of media. And he was able to articulate that crisply and concisely. And I was like, let's go. And it's a media company though. And so the challenge is that media companies typically don't trade at venture valuations. And so we've been throughout the whole kind of journey, kind of been reminding everybody like, look, this is still a media company. It's now, I think, the third largest media property in the world. We're in billions of views, but it's a media company. So venture investors typically don't invest in media companies. Good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, truly, Meb, yes. I mean, I think that there's a guy who's very, very like me, doesn't like this is, I don't do media. You're a friend and I'm, I'm happy to do this, but I generally don't talk other than to my backers. And so which is also very intentional and not wanting a brand and still being able to get great access. Like I'm playing a long game that is so long that most people can't even see it. But back to it, there's a guy, his fund is called Lead Edge. I've never met him, but he seems to be quite like me in, in thought. And I remember reading a profile on him and he said, to be a great venture investor means being very lonely. That for many, many years, and you talk to people that I admire, the best companies in their portfolio were these companies that literally nobody else would touch. That's how you make money in this asset I mean, class. You talk about Grove being one that yeah. you invested in. I think it may have had a one or two million revenue in the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I left the hospital of the, it was the second day. So it wasn't like I left while in delivery to meet Grove. And my mom at the time was like very deliberate in saying, you're a terrible husband and a terrible father. Like, how dare you do this? But my wife and our kids are both like, thank you so much. Hey, we did a podcast from the hospital after I had my first child. So I, <laughs> I can relate. You have to have the other part of this business. To be a great manager in this business, you actually have to have a great partner because you have to jump on things when you need to jump on them. And a lot of your friends and family will look at you like you're totally nuts. Anyway, so Grove's run rate was at 1.9 million annualized four and a half years ago when I made that seed investment. And tell listeners what Grove is. Grove is the already America's largest independent brand for 
home and personal care. So your soap, we'll do a little non-paid ad for Grove. So think about your soap, your your bathroom tissue, these kinds of things. So Stu and Karthik of Jumbotel told me a clear vision that was so obvious that you just had to go. Two best CEOs in my portfolio. And what Stu said was, in the rest of America that most of us have never even been to, there are just as many people who care about the environment as in these coastal cities. And they equate, if they're heads of households with children, they equate what's good for the environment as being what's good for my kids. And so they can't get access to the brands that we can get access to because there's maybe one retailer that carries it and it's maybe 30 or 40 minutes away each way. That was very, very true and still is for the most part of this country. Suburban is still a huge part of population in this country. And I think, again, why macro is so important is that most venture investors ignore the macro, much to their peril. Anyway, so he says, all these people need this product. And Amazon, he said, is always going to focus on lowest price and they're never going to care. They're never, they're just going to like either lowest price or like what they were paid to sell that day. And so if we build this brand that's actually very much away from Amazon, but rather that we care and that we're choosing the products in which are best for you and your family to buy, that that would be the beginning of like a massive new brand. And so in the first few years when we made the seed and the A investment, I think at the A, they might have had their first Grove branded product, which was like a sponge because it was cheap and easy to make. But the vision was always that we will replace, we'll gradually replace these third-party products with our own. That was like clear as clear as day. But the third point that he made was that CPG, the large industrial CPG companies, you know, they have multiple brands that are multi-billion dollar businesses, individual brands, tight as a multi-billion dollar business. And he said that the problem with, and he'd come from TPG, I think, in grocery. So he knew the space intimately well. And what he said is like, look, Tide is 95% water, but in large part because of the fact that they have to merchandise from the store shelf, it meant that their kind of packaging and their form factor was never going to be efficient for e-commerce. But if you actually separated merchandising, the point of sale online from the actual physical product, you could make massive innovations in the actual way in the product was packaged. And so the reason why Grove, I think Grove will become the type of company that people look back on and go, man, if I had only owned that one stock, I would have been set. And so the thing of it is, is that the CPG companies cannot cannibalize those store sales. They cannot, will not. So they're kind of stuck. And so that's why they're trying to buy as much of this innovative product as possible. But it was also very clear to me because Stu came from, he had left a promising career in private equity where his peers are making tens of millions of dollars a year. And he chose to start the startup that success for him would look, I'm now giving you my secrets, unfortunately, but I knew that success for him, because a lot of the time, the best entrepreneurs will sell too early, unless you kind of properly support them through secondary and kind of really do that well. A lot of the founders, they're like, they have to sell. And so it's the tin cup moment of most people lay up. Most people don't go for it. One of my favorite movies in film history, that moment in that movie. But um, that was Grove. And I had multiple friends of mine 
who are venture investors. Tell me, Tom, I see this company getting to 100 million in two to three years. That is clear. At 10, at the A, we did it about a $10 million run rate, which was 5X in 18 months. And people at the time said, oh, they're too reliant on paid acquisition because bad consumer investors are like, well, if it's going to be great, then there should be lots of organic. And Stu's view was, no, if we can efficiently acquire, like brands advertise, it's what we do. And if you can be efficient in that, you can do that. So at this round where we had 5 x I had two investors say, we're going to get to 100 million unquestionably, but since the comps in the category are 2x run, then how is this company ever going to get to a multi-billion dollar company? Both of those investors now, when I say like, this is the next growth, like they'll pay attention to everything in that respect. And I was just talking with one of them yesterday. He's a friend and a mentor, even though, you know, he passed on the growth and he goes, yeah, you know, that was my mistake is... I didn't look at him. I didn't see who he was and what his motivations were. And and I didn't look closely enough at that. And also the other thing that you have to do is as an investor is you have to get out of the mindset of, well, I would never use this. I would never do this. That will get you out of almost every great investment. That I think is like the most obvious thing in venture or the most non-obvious thing is if you think you understand it, you're probably about to make a bad investment. As I look at both of those that I participated in, there's a theme, and it may not be the dominant theme, but it's a theme that I keep coming back to in a lot of things that we talk about, which is so many people, and it's not just human curation, but they want something, like in the case of the highlights for Wave, they didn't care about watching it on TV. They don't care about, but they care about is the content good? And so you find the impassioned creators who curate a channel that may be about rugby or whatever. And then the, the people who watch it love it. And I subscribe to a lot of these types of channels on Instagram. And it's that concept of curation to, in a, in a similar way, Grove, it seems like people will say, look, I don't want to have to go to the store and try to figure out which of these 50 brands of toilet paper is the right one. Just tell me what's a good one, what's ethically sourced, what's good for the environment, and I'm good. It may not be the single best, but there's, this is actually a John Bogle quote. It's like, it may not be the single best, but there's infinite worse. Yeah. And once you trust someone with that sort of, then you would buy everything from them. Right. And which is clearly what people are doing. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, the less worse is a great approach to enterprise investing, right? Like Zoom is still like not great. It's just less worse than everything else in the category. And so what's also really interesting is, is that most startups that become successful become bloated bureaucratic organizations. And so what's great about tech too is that, for example, you probably didn't do this one, log DNA. So log But DNA, however, this is a biotech? No, that's protein cure, which is Oh it's here. What's log DNA? So log DNA is server logging. So you need to know if you're running computers, you need to know how your servers are performing, because that's basically the performance of your computer business. And so the publicly traded competitor in the space is Splunk and Splunk is terrible. And everybody knows that Splunk is terrible. So then comes along Chris, Canadian, by the way, living in the Valley. And he's like, we're just going to make a much, much better product. By the way, the way that we're going to sell it is through usage-based pricing. So if you're a small startup, then you know it costs you almost nothing to have this great quality product. The usage-based piece was key to understanding that business. And so we're just going to grow with these companies. And so enterprise, some of the best, did you do Unido? Mm -hmm. 
So some of the best investments in enterprise look like the most boring, like, I don't know what this does, like, da 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 Those are the companies that just print money. So we'd love to hear maybe one or two other companies. I know you can't talk about ones that are currently in fundraising or registration, but maybe any that you funded in the last year or even older, but that just you think are... Yeah, the best, the best investment I made and multiple other than Grove is this company called Jumbotail. And Jumbotail is based in Bangalore, India. You went over there, right? Yeah. How long? About, I think, two or three weeks. I've never been. It's on my to-do list. Well, so here's the thing is like LPs who have trusted me for years said to me, Tom will follow you anywhere into anything except India. And I had this very specific view and believe that India will actually be the largest country by GDP in the next decade. And India actually is the most stable large population country on earth. And so that's just the facts. And these two entrepreneurs both met at Stanford doing their MBA. And so the thing that my LPs that did go into the deal would say to me is, oh, they're just Stanford MBAs. There's this kind of perception that a lot of investors lost their shirts on backing these kind of industrial companies. They were industrial companies. You had your cousins running them, et cetera. This is a software business. And in India, the way that it works, grocery and food. So Grove is grocery and food. I kind of like, what are the things everybody has to buy to survive? It's kind of it's like a good macro theme, right? So 300 billion of food and groceries sold in India a year, 95% of it is transacted through these little mom and pop shops that their grocery business has been like ours in the 20s. And so because there's a lack of electricity, people only buy things like they buy two eggs. And this business is effectively a mobile ordering app for these Kirana stores that allow them to not only buy, but then also actually end up having all of the goods distributed straight to their store. So instead of them going two hours out of the city in complete chaos, and what's also happening, I think that it's important that we talk about too, is this generational shift towards laziness. The advent of the smartphone just made us inherently more lazy. You could say the positive attribute here is hardwired to pay for convenience. And so even somebody that's poor, that's of the next generation will say, I'm willing to forego a few rupees to pay a convenience tax. Convenience taxes are highly, 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 highly good businesses to be in. So that's what Jumbotel is. And again, I'm just so proud of that courage because people who I truly, deeply respect said to me, Tom, you've worked so hard to build this reputation amongst people that know you. You're about to throw it away. That's what they told me. And they said, also too, why are you making life so hard on yourself? Don't do it to you. Don't do it to your family. Don't do it to your LPs. These are people that I deeply, deeply respect. And sometimes I think people might think that I'm reckless. It's so calculated. And so Jumbo Tail, what was the kind of stage what they were It was at? Series B. Series B. I led through an SPV the Series B. And it was the hardest financing that I ever did. And honestly- Hardest it, in what sense? That, Convincing people to invest you know, in it? Well, yes. But then also <laughs> I had a bunch of commits lined up and December happened. Like the close was supposed to be before I went on my- Hawaiian vacation. And then the markets just December 2018. Yeah. 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 Priced the certainty of that hike in and everybody fled. So I had a bunch of people say, and the problem with SPVs is until you sign the paperwork, 
there's nothing. So what I'm having to do with the SPVs, which is the hardest part, is that I'm having to sell capital to buy capital effectively. And that is incredibly taxing. It's hard enough to be a good buyer. It's another thing. And that's what AngelList does, right? Is I click a button, they take care of the rest, which is fantastic. There's the convenience tax of- The convenience tax. 5% carry. It's a huge tax (laughs) on me, trust me. You want to hear a funny story real quick, by the way, is that we- to my knowledge, maybe not the only asset manager that's ever done this, but one of the only ones that I know of is we had raised, you can't really call it a crowdfunding round, but we raised an investment round from accredited investors for our company. And this was a few years ago. And originally we were going to do it on AngelList. But the thing is, I was like, we're, all we want to do is basically open it to our audience. Say, hey, look, if you want to invest in our company, you can invest in it. If you don't want to, that's fine. We wanted people who had been emailing us over the years, would love to invest in an ETF company, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, but we drew up all the docs here and said, hey, maybe we'll use AngelList because it's just a nice platform, convenience tax. People can click that are accredited, don't want to deal with it. And AngelList is like, you know, you're not a tech company, so we don't think it's a good idea. And I was like, you guys, like I've invested in like hair companies and smoothie companies and toilet paper companies. I'm like, are you guys serious? I'm like, whatever. I don't, I don't care either way. I don't want our investors to have to pay carry in it because we're doing the raising, right? We weren't. And I think it ended up raising like 3 million, but I just laughed because I wanted to use them because the ease of it and it's really well done. But anyway, digression. Okay. So convenience tax of trying to do this on AngelList. So the AngelList folks should be going out and calling family offices, like large family offices, and saying, let's either programmatically deploy capital or get somebody in your office to just put a good chunk of your technology investing through the platform. And I think that because of the founder, they believe very much that like technology by itself will scale. And I think in the capital markets, it's just not true. It's a very relationship-driven business. So therefore, they have people like yourself who are these entrepreneurial investors who love pouring over these notes. And you're the people like yourself are what allow me to do what I do. But the problem is that when I talk to a lot of my backers, what they tell me is they quickly get overwhelmed by opportunity. And even a lot of my large family offices, I'm so active. I did 44 financings last year, half all and half new. I'm slowing down the new stuff considerably because I have so much great stuff to pick from in my follow-ons. But what she, and by the way, like imagine trying to do 44 financings like without AngelList, it would have been insane. And I'm also not a steward of their capital. I'm actually technically a special advisor and It's trust and access that they provide, and then I do all the work. What's the average kind of like, is it about 50 people in a deal, 100? It's far less than you'd think. And is it at like the usual check size? I impose a strict minimum, right? There are some people who are like 1,000 bucks and up. My minimum is 5,000. And the reason is, is that I'm trying to allocate serious, serious capital. And on the law of numbers, you just can't, you can't do it. But- I hope that there is a day, and if it's not AngelList, it will be other platforms, but that whomever figures out how to get big allocators on the platform will, on a platform like this, will, AngelList is best positioned to do this for sure. They will figure out that that will be kind of the future of capital. I really believe that. I would say, I think it will be the future of this asset class for sure. 
Interesting. Because you've seen a, a couple derivations. You've seen equities in kind of the late stage private. Jason Kalkanis went off AngelList and kind of did his own thing. Yeah. It's interesting. There's there's so much development going on very quickly. It's going to be fun to watch. Totally. And it is the natural progression of at least this part of alternatives. Because it is so much story-driven and founder-driven and so on and so on, it, it lends itself well. Whereas if you're doing some like complex real estate transaction, I don't know if it necessarily... There's a marketplace for everything, but I don't know if those things will, will take off as much as on this equity side of things. Sounds like you might need to start hiring some people. 40 deals. Never, you, uh... never, <laughs> never, you, you, never, is, never. Is this a solo operation besides yep. your poor wife and children? Yeah, yes. <laughs> and it's intentional that way. What I learned was I hate managing people. I love, love coaching people. So for me, I'm trying to stay a firm of one. Well, it's true on the employee side, but in that I do want to spend, I spend so much time on the road. Like so much time. I've this is visiting to. companies or what? Yeah. And hunt. Just have to live on the road. You can't, or you pick less places. And so does that mean conferences? Does it mean no, you're acting? never. So when you say on the road, is this you just literally going to visit companies? Yeah. So like a classic, for example, I have Seattle, LA, New York, Boston, Toronto, San Francisco, LA, Montreal, Dar, Tanzania, Bangalore, India, as my current portfolio. A few others scattered, but there's good concentration. So what percentage of the time is visiting the current companies versus sourcing it's about, new ones? Nowadays, it used to be almost kind of 50-50, and now it's like 80% in service of the portfolio and 20%. Which is cool because you're not technically getting paid to do that. No, it's very expensive. So the other huge part of that, though, is and this is any angel investor that's listening really under, needs to understand this. I said at the beginning is that a lot of investors have this approach that, well, I gave you money. And so therefore be accountable to me. It doesn't work that way here. You have to flip it. You have to be, and I just spoke with one of my, probably I think one of the most valuable companies I invested in last year. And for example, we were supposed to have breakfast in San Francisco and text me at like 11 o'clock. It's like, I'm still at the office. I'm not going to be able to make 8 a.m. Can we catch up later? No problem. Text me that morning. Thanks so much for understanding. Why don't we talk at noon? Noon goes by, doesn't call. And I said, hey, you know, like, can you meet me at my favorite meeting place? No, let's do a quick call. So if I didn't stay on him, he would have gone through his day being busy and not called. And I spoke to him and I said, you're my most underserved founder right now. And I hate that. Love this business and I hate that. And he goes, you're right. You know, like I actually... And he's not sending updates. He's not doing anything. By the way, his board member is a dear, dear friend of mine. And so I'm able to kind of triangulate through. But nevertheless, he it was like, yeah, I don't do a great job of engaging investors. And I said, that's okay. It's my job to engage you. And I'm just going to stay bugging you and da, 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 da. And you could tell automatically that that started to kind of have him go, okay, this is a guy that's in my corner. This is a guy that's different than a lot of other investors. And so that's the beginning of hopefully a long emerging trusted relationship. One, one question, to what extent, and the answer could be zero because I don't know them, but are your LPs that invest in the deal ever additive or useful to the portfolio companies or the process in general? Do you have much of an interaction with a lot of them or is most of it 
increasingly, like what I've tried to do is get to know who my people are, which Angelus makes, they don't care to, they have not put any of that product in there other than like a LinkedIn profile perhaps. And what does a LinkedIn profile tell you about anybody? I log into LinkedIn, check five spam emails and log out. <laughs> That's the extent I use LinkedIn. Although, although- We push our content to it, yes, but- Yes, exactly right. So people read it. I don't know why anyone goes there and reads it, but people read it. I think because a lot of true professionals don't have, I mean, I guess we're excluded from this, but don't have time for Twitter. Yeah. And so they want to get a feed. They don't want to go on Facebook. They don't want to go on Twitter. They don't want to go on Instagram. They want to see like what's relevant to my business today. And they focused their feed on that. And they got very, very good at it. For me, when you check your top right, like the things that are highlighted as their news stories, are those pretty relevant for you or no? I will check. I don't know because I just don't ever go on there. Yeah. And it's been a while. I may have changed over the years. I just, it's not one I have used, but maybe we should. I look at it, I mean, because I'm referencing people, I'm on it all the time. But yeah, I've noticed it's gotten way, 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 way better. So LPs, you... Yeah, LPs for the most part are, I mean, I tell my LPs specifically, you cannot communicate with these people without my permission. And so... Because again, a founder is like, wait a second, what's going on? And then, or Some worse. guy put in a thousand dollars. Yeah, thinks that he has an opinion that should be listened to. My job is to be an efficient intermediary. And so that was a lesson that some of my backers didn't really understand. And now they understand. I mean, in an ideal scenario would be, potentially one day where you actually have some LPs that you have a company and this, that, and the other that actually could be, they get an update and they say, oh, we're looking for a new COO. Yeah. And I do do that. I do do that. Wherever there's a request for help, I share it out. But I mean, on the offline side, my LPs are very, very active. Yeah. Okay. We're going to start to wind down here. (laughs) We've kept you for a long time. I'd love to stay for a few more hours. As you look to the horizon, what's the next decade? What's Tom in his 40s look like? What's the plan over the next 10 years? It sounds like you're transitioning a little more to, you'll still do new financing, but a little more of financing your current companies. Yeah, a lot of follow on. Unfortunately, you do realize that as one human do have limits. And it's sad to admit when you start to feel like you're coming to that upper bound. I love what I do so much. It's my purpose in life is to be helpful to people that I believe in. And so you'll see actually shortly that I'm going to start to back new Toms, that I'm going to be kind of more of the allocator to the next angels. And that therefore I'm then coaching and even engaged in active feedback sessions with the CEO. So I'll introduce myself and saying, hey, I'm keeping him accountable or her accountable. So if they're not living my brand, you let me know. And then what I'm doing is then saying, I'm coaching them through how they think about the opportunity and they support that entrepreneur and so on and so on. But I'm getting all this information asymmetry and that allows me then to go on and take the Series C or Series D financing. There'll come a point where I'll be able to maybe click a button and deploy $20 million into a single deal. And when that comes, then like look out. And so therefore, what I'll wanna do is be doing what your classic, older, grayer VC is doing, which is the hard board work and deploying serious capital where I'm the steward. 
And then I get to do this baton. See, the other part of it is every angel has this upper bound. And so if you're like me, which is building lifelong relationships, investing across every round of your best companies, you need a baton process. And so for me, what I'm by the time that an angel goes from C to Series C and I take over at the C, I give that person bandwidth to be able to support another founder again. So that's my long-term strategy. I think that you have to remember that this is an asset class that requires exceeding amounts of patience. And it's why it's it's just not well suited to a lot of investors and entrepreneurs who made their money by moving forward at the speed of light. You're sitting, we're talking about your 100-year fund, like it requires patience. To do stuff that is changing the world, like it's not going to happen overnight. Like that's the bottom line. It's interesting. There's two things that spring to mind. One is one of the challenge for a lot of people. So I'd love to hear you talk about this. For the people who are listening and who more individuals or advisors of individuals, so not family offices or endowments that probably have this covered already, but people that say probably entrepreneurs or people who are doing an angel investing or want to, how should they think about allocating or starting to? And then second, how should they and how do you think about a sell discipline? So there's the ones you don't have choice. The company goes out of business, the company gets acquired, but the one where they eventually say go public or you then have the choice yes or no to sell, how do they think about it? So a little bit wrapped in there. How should people think about allocating? Well, let's start with the selling question because I think that's actually the most interesting. I spent a lot of time thinking about this and educating people about my approach, which is, so for example, in growth, there was a big secondary where some investors got, and even other interesting thing about my SPVs is I can actually trade out individual LP units and keep the position whole. So what ended up happening was that my SPV LP said, yeah, I'm up a lot. Let's go. And I said, hey, I'm on the other side of this, just in full transparency. And he said, no problem. And so my job, and I think you'll also start to see lots more, there's already starting to be kind of like shadow secondaries on AngelList. And I mean, the, the secondary market is always in the shadows. Uh, a lot of stuff trades that you don't even know about. But for me, if I were to actually say to Stu, I think a billion dollars is the upper bounds of this business, the relationship would be over. So what I mean by that is you build a legend by going all the way. And if you try and trade out early, then you're just capital. So for me, it's about more managing the follow-on because what I learned, the biggest mistake I made in angel investing was I did not double, triple, quadruple down on my companies that I had tremendous conviction in. And, oh man, I'll never make that mistake again. We're talking about that off the record. And so I course corrected on that big time, right? Like now my strategy is actually higher loss rate early, but so long as I stop, then I've learned a lot. And that goes back to, we can talk about allocating, is that the greatest amount of learning and the greatest amount of knowledge that you'll get and instinct for the asset class is being early. Super, 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 super duper early. That will train somebody's instincts and that money you should just completely allocate to being a total write-off. And then what you're trying to do then is find those companies that you now know, you know how well they're doing. You actually can start to feel the pattern of the business. And hopefully because you've done all these lunches and these dinners and these walks and you get to know what's really going on, I have so much information asymmetry. And it's also a rare but magical experience when you do see a product market fit 
flywheel just start yeah. to spin. It happens so many times, not just in private markets, but also public. And But it's a really fun thing to see happen. I mean, granted, as an investor, of course, it's a fun thing. But so you're saying to focus more on those where you have the insight and deploy more capital. Correct. Okay. Yeah. And so on the sell side, I do say to people, I just had this conversation with somebody the other day. It's like, hey, if you want to go into funny money land, if you want to get SoftBank and run that process, odds are I'm not going to be with you and I'm going to find secondary as quickly as possible. And for me, there is very few companies. I actually have, I think, only really one, which I like, very at the board. I'm, I don't take board seats, but sometimes I'm a board observer. And I've said like, no, we should play zero sum here. It's a massive, massive, massive market. And we can actually use capital as that moat. The CEO though is not going to lose his mind. He's incredibly, incredibly well adjusted and he's got a great board around him. And so he's not going to, it's not going to make that same mistake. But in most cases, I say, there's one, for example, right now that since it's up, I can't talk about, but you may be in it or you might have looked at it where I know it's not going to be a multi-billion dollar company, but there's a high likelihood of it being still kind of 10x. And so the other thing about most investors don't even really kind of, in some cases, most investors won't choose the hundreds. Using my LP as the example, who's very, very smart, very, very smart, one of my true mentors. And you know his whole thing is the best way to make money is not to lose it. And so when he sees these things trade out, get to, you know, I can't say, but a lot, a lot, a lot, he's like, cool, I'm done. I don't need to go any further. And from a defensive perspective, that's absolutely the right call. The thing for me and the thing for all managers that want to be legends among CEOs is you have to play offense. You can't basically play. Once you're in, you have to go all the way. It's a Stan Drunken Miller theory, one of the best macro guys of all time. But we had another guy on the podcast who wrote a book. It's kind of a cult classic because I feel like most people um, have never heard of it. Chris Mayer, who wrote a book called 100 Baggers. And it was based on an old book called something like 101 in the stock market. But he went and did a quant study of all the public stocks that did 100 bagger, so 100 times your money, not 100%, but 100 times your money and the characteristics over time. But it's a little bit different in the public markets because every day you can sell. What he was trying to relate to people is that even if you invested in the McDonald's, Berkshire Hathaway's, Amazon's of the world, it's really hard not to sell them along the way because yeah. you double your money. You're like, oh my God, I double my money. Let's sell it. Let's buy a house. But every one of those stocks doubled and then tripled, quadrupled, you know, all the way up. And on top of that, you have the big drawdown in private equity land. It's easier is the wrong word. It's because you're often locked in. You can't sell, which is actually, you know, I've changed my mind over the years. I actually think is a mass having managed money. We have 30,000 plus investors now for long enough in the public markets. I know that it's actually probably a net benefit. You just can't sell as long as they're private. You're stuck with these companies, which allows them to compound versus the public markets. People, one of the biggest mistakes we see them make in the public markets is selling too soon. And I, I would say that, you know, a lot of founders and I talk about, because I have that confidence with them to sell or not to sell. And the way that I heard it told to me by somebody that I greatly respect is if somebody is coming along and valuing the business at a greater valuation that you know you'll be like, that ex far exceeds what you can operate into two years from now, you have to sell. In other words, if the premium is so great, and I think that that is broadly applicable to the right way to think about hold or sell given a secondary opportunity is 
actually touches on Mayer's book, which is that like if growth is still happening and you know that there's you're just at the beginning, why would you sell? So it's more looking at it from where is this going? And one of my he wasn't really a mentor, but he was a guy that every time I was with him, I just lapped up what everything he said. And he was a vice chairman of one of the biggest investment banks in, in Canada. And he said, you know, Tom, the way in which to think about the public markets is when the markets are wrong, you buy. In other words, when there's a sell-off, but fundamentally what you know about where the company is headed hasn't changed, those are the best buying opportunities forever. And I feel like that to me is kind of the definition. It was That was said to me in my mid-20s, and I think it was kind of very formational to how I think about venture is like, I don't want to be where everybody else is. I want to be where everybody isn't. And that's why on price, and the other part of it is like being with people who are actually not, it's not to say that a lot of my CEOs aren't charismatic, quite the opposite, but for whatever reason, the way they talk, like the way I talk, most people, people would actually like, have an ability to analyze how much of what I've said will get retained. I know that the way that I talk is only like a very small percentage of what I actually say gets retained. I tried to fix it, but you can't change the way that you talk without a lot of work. So you don't say A a lot for a Canadian. I have not yet said, <laughs> but I did hear myself be Canadian a few times. But anyway, with respect to the markets, I think that, and the way that I think about investing is you kind of have to, and it goes back to that lead edge fellow that you just have to be okay being alone. And then these founders, the less charismatic they are, or rather the less effective in communicating their vision early, the better buying opportunities you get. And so founders who kind of crush at fundraising means that you're always going to be paying kind of top dollar for your follow-on. I have that particular situation, like one of the best founders, in my, like actually some of the best founders in my portfolio, I'm always paying in the round that I'm following on to, I'm paying almost too high of a premium. But because I know that the growth is still, we're in early chapters, I can pay it. But people are looking at me going like, and that's the problem with SPVs. They're like, whoa, Tom, like traction relative to price, what are you doing? And so top founders are always going to optimize for valuation. So you have to get very, very, very confident in who are your top and where you're kidding yourself. That's not... Always obvious. No. <laughs> what are some resources? So people listening, they want to seriously start to allocate to this asset class. How do they get up to speed? Anything in particular stand out? It can be you already next conferences, books. I might never get invited back, but I think that YC has become a place for very, very wealthy individuals, family offices, et cetera, who don't have deal flow. And I would say that YC is absolutely unquestionably the best brand for accelerators in the world. What does it get? Like a hundred presenters? Yeah. It's, I just finished with them. It was crazy. I've actually never been. It sounds kind of exhausting. It is. <laughs> but what's happening now is, is that most of us who have deal flow go there. YC is very good at curating thematically. And because they have this incentive structure to pump up these companies, they're coming out at 10, 15, 20 caps, valuation caps on companies that are barely alive. So back in the day, this would have been like a $4 million. Right. But if you're trying to make money, you can't, it's just a terrible place to invest, but it's a great place to learn. So what's happening is, is that the people that are actually chasing YC deals are people who are learning about technology and learning about what makes great entrepreneurs and so on and so on. So 
Techstars has got so many different accelerators all around the world. Probably anywhere in America, there's now some form of accelerator. I'm surprised that people aren't leveraging more of these opportunity zones to create kind of economic development accelerator type things. But nevertheless, I think that the number one lesson that I would apply to anybody that wants to allocate here is you have to either be yourself confident in your ability to evaluate people or you have to hire somebody that is. If you don't believe that you have good people instincts and or if your track record in picking people turns out not to be that great, then you really shouldn't be allocating here because so much of the entire value creation of this entire asset class is driven by people. You look at human capital, and I remember the guy that I worked for, the billionaire, talked a lot about human capital, and he would explain in the first dot-com boom, why are these companies worth so much more to these hard asset companies? And his answer was effectively people, that these people possess particular sets of skills and knowledge that is actually highly, highly rarefied. And he was so, so, so right about that. And so I learned a lot from him. And fundamentally, it's people that create value in startups. And being able to pick the right people is everything. So for example, I'll kind of maybe leave you with this. We don't have to leave, but actually I kind of do soon. But um, I only got one more question. I'm way late. I want to, I recently was in a portfolio company of mine and the CEO invited me to spend time with his executive management team. And the company is doing well, but has had a lot of turnover. And a lot of investors were getting nervous and they ascribed it to his youthfulness and naivete. And it's not, he's one of the best founders in my portfolio. There was a lot of turnover. So here I'm with the executive team. I immediately recognized the source of all of the problems. And it was clear to me in seconds. Now, it was so clear that I then spent the hour trying to convince myself I was wrong, but I just kept seeing it. And I called him up that night and I said, this is the source. This is the problem. And he goes, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. This is not the problem. And he said, you know what? I'm so kind of troubled by the fact that you're making this assessment. And I so trust your instincts that I'm going to ask you to speak with several other people. And please, Tom, like, I know that you're always right, but let me like really, really stay open here. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to stay open. Next morning, I speak to one of the board members and the board member is like, no, this is not a problem. I'm coaching this person and you know, da, 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 da. there's other sources. And why don't we focus on the real problem? And I said, thank you very much. Da, da, da. And I called him back and I said, I'm convinced that I'm right here. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, we've been through this before and you are generally right, but this time you're wrong. About a month and a half goes by and he calls me and he goes, you were right. I'll never make that mistake again. Probably will. But for me, I don't know where it comes from, but I believe that I can pick people. And that, and I think, you know what it comes from? Is that I was considered stupid. I mean, I was, they told me, I was in a remedial class and I knew I wasn't. And so what it left me with was this idea that like people are just asleep. And so if I can just stay alert, that I will. And also, you know, the other thing I realized is deeply personal, but being that I was a kid living by myself, I was very afraid everywhere I went. And so <laughs> probably rightfully so totally, you know, <laughs> and I was totally afraid. And so those protective instincts made me recognize friend or foe very, very quickly. And I like to say, because of where I spend all my time on my philanthropic side, which is in prison, which is for another day, I like to say that I grew up on the streets and 
for me, I did. And so those people that had to, had that feeling of survive and that their survival was much more kind of up to them, I think are just kind of innately better at picking people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Man, I'd love to get into the philanthropic side. Well, uh, let me just invite any, I have to talk about it because it's the most important thing in my life other than my children. But I work <laughs> in one of the most violent prisons in America. And I had the opportunity completely random. I don't go to conferences. I, I was invited to a conference. I didn't feel like I was, it was not the right Tom Williams. I got the wrong invitation. And I met this woman. She brought me to this prison. And I met two men there on the first day that I was like, these guys are special at same picking people. And I've supported them and my wife and I and now our whole family have watched these men evolve at such an incredible rate. And it's plain to see for everybody that any listener that wants to have the most incredible, life-changing, truly, weekend of their lives, if they're a good human, I would invite them to come to jail with me. We do this exercise called Step to the Line. And it's organized originally by Brene Brown, organizing principle by her. And the idea being that you're on one side, all of us as volunteers on one side, and all of the folks who are incarcerated are on the other side. And because they're all gang members, you can't survive in jail without being affiliated or controlled by one of these five gangs. You're standing across somebody that has, you know, F.U. tattooed on his face. And you're going through this exercise, and it originally is designed to keep you in your biases. There were more than 50 books growing up, 50 books in your home when you grew up, and so on and so on. And But then it gets progressively more intense. And when you realize it, we all have pain and shame. The human condition is pain and shame. And it's our greatest limiter, that pain and shame. And so this exercise asks you to excise all of it. And what you find is, is that the stuff that you thought made you unlovable, the stuff that you thought nobody would ever look at you the same way if they knew, you find that the person who gives you that acceptance is the guy with F.U. tattooed on his face. And that you feel like you are in that moment more bonded together than bring a lot of my founders to this and my most special people I bring. And, you know, I said one of my founders, he's like, I just shared more with guys in prison that I have with my girlfriend of two years, you know. But it's through that work that I've also become deeply, 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 deeply aware of the existence of people that we deliberately would avoid. And in America, not just the formerly incarcerated, but also to people that are poor, people that don't talk normal or the right way, there's more of these people in the world than any, than any other population. Because of our biases, we've been taught this otherness and we've been taught that we are better and they are worse. I think what's going to happen in, in our lifetime, I'm incredibly optimistic about humanity. I really do believe that each generation, we are better than our... I think humans basically just want to be less worse than our parents' worst parts and better than our best parts. I think that's humanity. I'm very nervous about our lack of control of our tools, but I'm very, very, very optimistic on the spirit of our species. Well said. If people were interested in kind of some of the ideas you mentioned about 
the prison. Is that through an organization? Do you do it on your own? Yeah, I'm the chairman of a nonprofit which sponsors this work of an organization called Hustle 2.0 at a particular prison. It's great. Awesome. Well, add a show note link if there is one. Last question. I want to squeeze it in. I almost wanted to end there. Probably should have. But this is a quick question we ask on all the podcasts now. And you're not allowed to say Grove. <laughs> or you're not allowed to say Grove. You can say anything else. But this can go back to your childhood. I related to that as an entrepreneur. You're talking about being an entrepreneur in childhood. Except I would buy stink bombs and sell them to my friends and still get suspended. So an early <laughs> entrepreneur, so I was the distributor. Anyway, and then your career, this could be good, it could be bad, it could be stocks, it could be companies, it could be something else. Most memorable investment, good, bad, just the one that sears in your brain, you're not allowed to say Grove the unicorn or uh, soon to be. Most memorable, probably a company called Plastic with a Q. And it's a really, really funny story because... There's so many of these, might be many people listening that are like this, you know, these like supposed wealth managers who are just commission guys with an expense account. And I was so poor at this point in my, in my life that uh, I was like in the beginning of my last company. And I was at this conference and this guy, and I think the CEO of this company has kept his card because like we are going to buy him the most incredible dinner out. And he's like, oh, like, you're Canadian. That's so great to know. Like, do you want to? I'm like, I've got nothing in my bank account. Please, like, just, I'm no, don't waste your time on me. And he's like, oh, I know this. And he was like me. He wanted to be helpful, right? He was just trying to make connections. And so he goes, I know this other Canadian. You got in tech. You guys should meet. That was his whole thing. And this was my third or fourth angel investment in my entire career. So we meet. We're like both like, why are we meeting? And I was actually with my wife at the time. And so she got to meet him the first day that I ever met him. And so I didn't understand the business whatsoever, but I was like, I get you. I want to invest in you. I actually missed. It was a bad read. I didn't understand the business, but I believed in him. And so let's go. And so that business today does billions in transactions. Anything that doesn't accept credit cards, you can pay with your credit card. There is a sports owner who I think bought his new jet with plastic, I kid you not. And so if not, like I think a lot of his, lots of people are putting tens of millions of dollars to this. If you've got the right points card too, it makes perfect sense. And so that's a business in which was brutally hard to finance. Everybody missed on that investment except the lead investor, the two lead investors. But by the way, like the guy that led that investment, his LPs were like, you are way over-concentrated what are you doing? He had enough backing that he could say, I'm going here. But he's just, he's a legend in my books for having done that. Your LPs, especially in a standard two and 20, they're paying your, you know, like if you're pissing off your LPs, you're not eating. So that business was like so, so, so hard to finance. And then after Burning Man last year, I kid you not, like I don't go to Burning Man. I think it's, you know, each their own, but it's not for me. And so we had five term sheets in one week. Every major investor was kind of, you know, every brand name investor was stabbing each other to try and get it. Because they all went to Burning Man and saw the light. That's, that's <laughs> we, we joke about that, but that's absolutely. They were all in the same happened. tent. 
So for me to be able to, and what makes that so special is, is that he recently celebrated his 30th birthday. And I was one of the only people on that trip that wasn't a college or childhood friend. Cool. And so did the company sell? Are they still in existence? No, they're very much in existence. Awesome. And, awesome. And That's a fun story. But, you know, I think the beautiful part about that was just kind of the random happenstance of the situation where so many times, and I can count this to personal relationships, but also business relationships, so many people are afraid to have that conversation or don't want to. And so many times we get emails where people will say, hey, maybe we'll host a happy hour or drop in something. And somebody email say, Meb, I really want to come say, hey, but I just, I just couldn't or things like that. And our advice is always like, make that extra effort. You never yep. know what comes of it. Our family motto is make your own luck. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. It's on the Williams crest. Tom, nice. this has been a blast. Thanks so much. Um, where can people uh, follow you? Find what you're up to? Find me on AngelList. I'm, I think, the only Tom Williams. And that's pretty much it. I mean, I and Medium, I kind of put a few things on Medium. But I really try to not build a brand because, like I said, I kind of when I was the least genuine or the least accomplished in my life, I kind of so oversold that brand that now I've kind of swung to the complete opposite end of that spectrum. And I really like being able to, and the other part of it is because I don't have a brand, if I had a brand, it would mean that I would have to end up having a team of people that are just saying no, 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 no all day. I get to traffic only in people that I know, and that's a much better place to be generally. Well, Tom, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Meb. Appreciate Listeners, it. we'll add show note links to mebfavor.com forward slash podcast, link to Tom's syndicate, all these other good things we talked about today, some of the books. We'll post links everything else. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. Leave us reviews. Shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love listening to it. We love reading it. Leave us a review. Good, bad, in between. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer.